Some of you are probably wondering why I'm all dressed up this morning, a little bit more than normal, maybe a lot more than normal. We do have a funeral here this afternoon at 2 o'clock, so I'd appreciate your prayers. And I'm not going to ch- get a chance to get home and get changed, but just a little warning. Next week I might be in jeans and a t-shirt, just kind of off balance, you know, so it kind of average out from the two weeks. So, But um, we, we've, been, we've been pounding away pretty hard over the last few weeks in the midst of this series about the 40 days in the Word. We've been taking some hard looks about, at the Scriptures. You know, we started out a few weeks ago asking, how is it that we really build our lives on the Word? We talked about the need to read it, to see it with our eyes, to hear it as it's proclaimed and taught. We talked about the need to speak it and talk to it about others. We talked about the need to write it, you know, using all the parts of our bodies, if you will, to process the Word of God. And we talked about why you could trust the Word, why it can indeed be the foundation for life now and for eternity. And we never have to be worried about its reliability. We talked about the role that it's supposed to have in our, in our lives, the way it changes us, directs us. Last week, George shared with us about how God works in our lives through the Holy Spirit so that we understand what it is that God's saying to us. At the heart and soul, and if you missed any of those, all of that stuff is on our website. You can go there and listen to the past messages and kind of catch up with us. But, but all those point to this truth, that this book has a unique role in allowing us to experience the life that God has for us. God gave us life. God gives us new life in Jesus Christ. That's an eternal life that He designs to be abundant. It's a life that starts now and lives forever. That's ours. How we take full possession of that life is taught to us in the Word of God. The purpose of the Scripture as we learn it and we come to love it is that we can live it. The truth is always designed to transform who we are. So when we think about the Scriptures... As intriguing as they can be, as conversation it can bring, and all those kinds of wonderful things, the, the wonderful joy can be to kind of figure out what it means. The, we need to always acknowledge that the primary role of the Word of God is to change us, to transform us. We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And God has given it to us as a gift so that this truth can change who we are and make our lives better, fuller, completer, more joyful, peaceful. Now, I want to state a truth this morning, is that every single one of you who claims to have a personal relationship with God has a personal obligation to be able to translate the truth of the Word into your own life. That's not my job. I have a job in the church to teach, and part of that is to teach you how to teach yourselves. We certainly have others in the, in the role of the church whose job is to, to teach, to explain the Word. But none of that is a substitute for you yourselves being able to pick up the Word of God, understand the truth, and apply it to your own life. God does not want your transformation to be solely dependent on somebody else. So He's given each one of us the Spirit so that we have the ability to go to the Word of God and understand it. Well, how do you do that? How is it that you and I can exercise this incredible privilege we have to go to the Word figure out the truth, and have it applied to our lives so that we can experience this life that God has for us. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. In fact, what I want to do is I want to teach you some principles, and then I want to demonstrate how those principles work as we look at a passage of Scripture. And and as you and I go through this journey of trying to bridge the truth of the of the Word of God as it was expressed in the historical context it was in, 
whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and bring it forward to us, there's, there's certainly several questions we have to go through, certainly several stages. And that's what I want to lay out for you this morning. It's kind of like a journalist kind of answering the, the who, what, why, where, and when kind of questions, you know? That's always the foundation of every story. The foundation of every journey of understanding the truth of the Word of God and applying it to our own lives so that we can be transformed really starts through these, these four steps. And the first of those is simply observation. And if you have your worship guides, I'd really encourage you to follow along the sermon outline this morning because it's, it's going to help you retain more because we're going to move fairly quickly because but, but, these are such fundamental things. But the first step in you and I embracing this wonderful task that God's given us to understand the Word of God and apply it to our own lives, the first task that is simply to come to the Scripture and our effort to study it is just to, just to observe what the Scripture says. Just read the Bible and, say, and, and, and make note of what the Bible is saying. You know, you go to the book of Genesis. You start with the first chapter. What does chapter 1 say? Chapter 1 says that God created everything. Created the light. Brought land forth from the waters. Created plants. Animals. Made man. Formed him out of the dust of the ground. Breathed life in him. What does the Bible say? Not about interpretation. It's simply observing what it is that it says. In a historical context, what's happening? In a theological sense, you start ripping through some of the, the prayers of Paul for, for believers, or you start working through Jesus' prayer for the disciples in the upper room. What, what's being said? It's simply the observation of what the Scripture is saying. Not about interpreting. It's simply about asking, what is it the Bible is saying? Step two is interpretation. And that's asking the question, what does the Bible mean when it says this? What, is, what does it mean? Well, you might say, well, doesn't the Bible mean what it says? Well, yes and no. <laughs> you know, first of all, let's just take an easy, easy one, right? When Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it aside. So the Bible means what it says. All of us who have had our eyes tempt us in the past and lead us to sin, let's just go ahead, let's just get a good grip, but, you know. I mean, we obviously don't think that that's what Jesus meant. So we have to figure out what it is that the Bible means when it says what it says. Sometimes it's exactly literal. Other times it uses figurative language. We use the idea of, you know, of, of, of pulling one another's legs. Well, I wonder what they might think if some other world invaded us, you know, they'd go around just pulling each other's legs, you know, just grab onto the right ankle and give it a yank. I mean, we obviously use that to say we were teasing one another or, or pulling a prank on one another and those kinds of ideas. We use it figuratively. We need to figure out what does the Scripture mean when it says this. And that can be challenging. Uh, I didn't know this before, but I, I discovered this this week, that if you were to take the Bible in its original languages of Hebrew and Greek, there's some Aramaic mixed in and that kind of stuff, but Hebrew and Greek, it, it takes almost 11,000 words in those languages to communicate the Old and New Testament to us. The standard English version is about 8,000 words. So it shows you some of the challenges of translating one language into another. And so we go through this journey of interpretation. You know, so we need to figure out what is it that the Bible means when it says this. One of the things I'd tell you to do is, is use multiple translations. You know, do this journey of trying to translate from 11,000 words to 8,000 words. There's a lot of choices that get made. So if you don't, you know, you can pick up, you can buy a number of Bibles that have different translations, or you can get one that has multiple translations on one page, or, or just go to a website. I, I mentioned in the first service, one of my favorite is BibleGateway.com. And they literally have a dozen or more English translations that you can choose from. So if you're studying a passage in Mark, like we've been doing in 40 days, 
You could just print it out in a number of different languages, or you could just line them up and read them there together, kind of idea. But in the various translations, you'll get an idea of what the words mean. Sometimes you come across words that really matter. Secondly, I mean thirdly, so now we've observed the text, we know what it says, we've interpreted it, so we have a sense of what it means. Then we need to contextualize the text. And what I mean by that is, one of the helpful steps that we take in Bible study is to say, what else does the Bible say about this? You're studying about marriage. And you're reading about it in one passage. In Ephesians 5, say, well, what else does the Bible say about marriage? There's some stuff from Peter you can go look at at other places. And there's founding of the marriage and back in Genesis. And, you know, you can look at other places in the Bible. If you're talking about things like anger or forgiveness or mercy, you could love, you can go look at different kinds of places. And there's lots of tools that you can use. If you went to a website like Bible Gateway, you could just type in the word, the love of God, that phrase. You'd probably get 150 to 200 references. You can just read right down through them. Gives you lots of different places where you're going to see how that's used. But we need to say, figure out what else does the Bible say about this? Lastly, and let me, let me say that about that point. That takes some work. That's why we're calling it Bible study. When was the last time when you studied for a class and it didn't involve work, you know? And it involves writing things down. You know, I was a much, much better student in college than I was in high school. You know, high school, I was a pretty good student. I went to college and I finished in the top 1% of my class. You know, the biggest difference was that I took notes when I read. <laughs> you know, I took notes in class. You know, I, I studied, I worked at it instead of floating through it. It takes some work. I'm sorry, this tremendous privilege that God's given you, it takes some work. To get good at anything takes effort. So we've observed the text. We've interpreted the text. We've contextualized the text. We, we know what it says. We've figured out what it means. We know what else the Bible says about it. The last test text, the last step is what is it that we're supposed to do about it? It's application. The Bible is always about transformation. The word, the truth is there to set us free. It only sets us free if we take action upon it. So what is it that the Bible challenges us to do with this truth that we now know about? Now, I understand that's fairly academic, okay? Observation, interpretation, contextualization, application. What I want to do in our service right now in the time that we've got left, is, is I want to take this process and apply it to a text and from it glean some truths for us today that will serve as the core of our message. I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Philippians chapter 2. We read a segment of Philippians 2 just a few minutes ago. We're going to look at a different section. This passage has been chosen intentionally. Because most of us, we'd read through this and say, well, this is just some personal remarks between Paul and the Philippian church and, and there's not much here for me. That... I want us to see that as we apply this practice to this word, we're going to see some wonderful truths for ourselves today. Some challenging words, some convicting words, some words if we act on them that will be transforming in our lives. little context. Paul's in prison in Rome. You know, he's made the long journey from Jerusalem, the shipwreck, etc. He's finally arrived in Rome. He's waiting for his day in court. He's exercised his right as a Roman citizen to have his trial heard before Caesar, the ruler of all the land. He's under house arrest. He's dependent upon others to supply the needs that he has to be able to sustain his life. Food and water and all those kinds of things. The church in Greece, from the city of Philippi, that has sent a guy by the name of Ephroditus to him with a love offering. A sum of money that they've collected to help meet those needs. Paul now is responding to that experience. And he's preparing to send a letter back to them. 
And this is where we find this context. It says, verse 19 of Philippians chapter 2, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may also be encouraged when I hear news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know His proven character, because He has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm convinced in the Lord that I myself will also come quickly. But I consider it necessary to send you Ephroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. You know, so the message had gotten back that he had gotten deeply sick and the church was concerned about this friend that they had sent out. And he now he's bothered since he's recovered that they're still worrying about him. And he wants to get back and say, hey, I'm okay. You know, so in verse 16, indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me so that I would not have another grief on top of another one grief on top of another. For this reason, I am eager to send him so that you may rejoice when you see him again and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. And I think that last phrase is along the lines that he was able to do what you weren't able to do because you're 800 miles away. Now, many of us, if we're speed reading through the New Testament, we say, well, this is a nice exchange between Paul and the church. Isn't it great that they were such great friends? You know, and that kind of thing. And we would just... Just pop right through it. Not a lot hold here. Let's get on to this. Let's get on to the meat where I can get something. You know, and and, and I I understand that. But when we pause at times with the understanding that all Scripture, as it says in, in Romans, was written to encourage us, there's truth here for us to get. And if we'll just slow down and use the very basic study principles of observing, interpreting, contextualizing, and applying. God can open up wonderful truths that can speak to our lives and help shape us into the people that really enjoy all of the blessings that he has for us. So let's just take those and kind of walk through this. Let's start with observation. What's really going on in this text? Well, primarily, Paul's just stating his plan that he sends to set, that he, his plans that he wants to send these two guys back to Philippi. He says, I want to send Timothy to you because he's the only guy like him that I got. And I also want to send back to you the guy that you sent to me, Ephroditus, so you can see that he's okay. So he's stating his plans that he wants to send these two guys back. That's not too revolutionary. What else does he do? Well, he's also saying, you know what? When I send these guys to you, give them a warm welcome because I, I can endorse these guys to you. These guys are two great role models. They're two great role models. And, and you know, look at what he says down in verse 29. He says, says and hold men like him in honor. Well, well what, what, what is Ephroditus like? And by implication, what is Timothy like? And so, you know, as you're observing, you say, well, okay, you know, he plans to send these two guys. And you also see that he, that he thinks a lot of these guys. And he's commending these guys to the church. And here are the reasons why he commends them. Just, again, just observation. No interpretation, just observation. Verse 20, you look at Timothy. I got no one else like him. There's, there's nobody else like-minded like him. Otherwise, he shares the same perspective that I have, whose only interest is your interest. He says, he'll genuinely care about your interests. Everyone else seeks their own, not of Christ, but he'll seek your interests as Christ would seek them. Verse 20, he genuinely cares about your interests. That's one. Two, he's got proven character. Look at verse 22. But you know he's, but you know his proven character. How do you know his proven character? He stood alongside me like a son in all of my ministry. This is a guy who's got proven character. So I commend him to you. That's why he's a good role model. Third, 
Look at it, verse 25. Now, looking at Ephroditus. He says, he's my brother, my co-worker, and fellow soldier. No? So he, he looks at him and he says, this is a guy who's a real partner in ministry. Again, observation. Verse 26. He, he, he's, it says here that he is, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because he, because you heard that he was sick. He, he, he's, he's worried that they're worried about him. He cares about how they feel. So he's distressed. And Paul sees that as something that's admirable. Something to be modeled. Lastly, he says he came close to death for the work of Christ. Look at verse 30. Because he became, you said you should honor men like him because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life. So those are the five reasons that he gives that we should, that he endorses these guys as role models. That's the observation. So let's step back now and do some interpretation. These guys are being held up to us as role models of what it means to be to live godly lives. It's a particularly strong word to men, but it's a word that applies to all of us as God's children. That, that, that if you want to live a godly life, you need to embrace the same kind of characteristics that these guys have. So let's just kind of unpack that a little bit. Let's start with the first one, verse 20. It says he genuinely cares about your interests, seeking your interests, not, you know, those of Christ's interest in you. All, everybody else, they seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Now, what is he really saying about Timothy? You can take a step back and let it process a little bit. And one of the words you might come up and say, you know, Timothy was a kind of a, a caring person. You could say that Timothy was unselfish. When Timothy looked at a situation, he didn't say, what's in it for me? He didn't look at it and say, what do I need from this? He didn't look at it and say, how is this going to affect me? He looked at it and says, what do these people need in the name of Christ? He's a caring guy. To be godly people is to be caring people. We have to care about others. You know, it's interesting. You know, that, that it, the, the teaching of the Word of God is, it can be so counter, counter-cultural. You know, we, we live in a time when, when we really ask, the, the, the dominant questions are, what's in it for me? How is this going to affect me? Is this good for me? Does this advance my career? Does this fulfill my desires? Does this meet my needs? Can I have it my way? Is this going to make me happy? I mean, we get bombarded with that stuff all the time, don't we? From, from selling your French fries and hamburgers, have it your way, you know, to, to everything else in life. You know, it's about you. I mean, I've had people sit in my office struggling in marriages, and they look at me and say, the reason I'm not willing to budge and do what I know God wants me to do is because I have a right to be happy. That's, that's what our culture teaches. Jesus steps in and says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're going to live that, you're going to be like Timothy. You're going to care, really care about other people. Secondly, it tells us that Timothy's got proven character. Verse 22, through all circumstances, situations, challenges, and relationships, Timothy had stayed the same. He had proven his character. You could just use the word character. I've chosen today to interpret it. says, you know what Paul's saying? That Tim, the, one of the reasons why Paul's holding up Timothy as a role model of what it means to be a person who lives a godly life, what does it mean for a man to live a godly life, is that Timothy's consistent. Whether he's young, whether he's old, or somewhere in between, whether he's at home, whether he's at school, whether he's in the workplace, whether he's traveling on business, or traveling on vacation, or out with his friends, or doing whatever, he's the same. Same language, same values, same practices. He's consistent. Consistent. Doesn't matter who he's with. Doesn't matter what he's doing. He's consistent. What a challenge for men and women of God today to be consistent. To be the same person in the Bible study group as they are in the bedroom and in the boardroom. In all the places in between. To be consistent. 
You know, uh, it's interesting. I, I think I really like the insight that Rick Warren had about the same kind of issue where he, he said, you know, people today are living their lives primarily by opinion. Those are things that they're ready to argue about. He said, but what we really need is a group of believers who live their lives by conviction. And those are the things that they're ready to die for. And when we are people who live our lives by conviction, we live our lives consistent. Great challenge for all of us across the board. Are we really people of proven character? Do we stand the test of God in every dimension of the way we're living our lives? Powerful challenge to us. He refers to Aphroditus, verse 25, as my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. Man, I, I could dig in deep here, but, but he, he's holding up Aphrodite and saying, this guy's a team player. He's a team player. Now, I can't, I can't imagine that the church at Philippi would have taken somebody who wasn't reliable, already a leader, to take on this journey. Basically, what they did is they collected a, a significant offering, they bundled it up, and they handed it to a guy, and he takes it on an 800-mile journey to get to Paul. And from what we can tell, he goes by himself. So he, he doesn't just kind of go around the corner from the church building and takes off and now he's off to Bermuda with $800. I mean, they trust this guy. This guy's already got a reputation. He's a leader. And yet when he comes to Paul, he's a fellow soldier, a co-worker, and a brother. You know, w- one of the words, and, and I'm going to stick with the C's here, is that if, if, you're, if you're a man of God, if you're a woman of God, you're, you're cooperative. You're a team player. You're plugged in. You are dependent with other believers. You're serving on a leadership team. You're plugged into a life group. You're connected to the body. You're not a lone ranger out trying to do yourself, prove yourself on your own, but you're, you're plugged in. You know, Paul was a spiritual superstar. He never liked to be by himself. He always wanted to have others around him because he knew it took a team. Godliness takes family. It takes connectedness with other people. The Scripture tells us to think of one another like family. Just think of the older guys and the older women as mothers and fathers and think of the youngest ones of brothers and as sisters. You know, there's, there's this whole idea that, you know, that the church is down south. They call it, you know, they have, they have brother Bob and sister Sue. You know, they got lots of those. But, you know, we think that's kind of funny. I mean, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. I don't think it's such a bad thing to call each other brother and sister. You and I are all joint heirs with Jesus before, Christ, before God the Father. That means all of us are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can introduce our, ourselves to one another and say, hey, this is my brother so-and-so. This is my brother Ken. This is my brother Mike. No, this is my brother Travis. This is my sister Trish. My sister Rebecca. You know, it, it, it fits. They cooperate. They're connected. They're plugged in. Anyways, I could get going too far. All right, because we're running out of time. A couple more things. And this is a word that, you know, here's Ephroditus. He almost died. Somewhere along the way or when he got to Paul or whatever, he almost died. He got, I don't know if he got beaten up or if he got sick or whatever, but, but he, he, you know, he, he got really deathly ill. He almost died. God intervened by his mercy and he recovered. But somehow in that interval, the word had gotten back to the church in Philippi that he was sick and they were brokenhearted. And now that he's recovered, the only thing you can think about is, man, you know, I want to get a word back to them that I'm okay, that I've made it, you know. Some of you know that my mom has had issues off and on for the last few years, in and out of hospitals and surgeries and et cetera, and, and still trying to figure out things that are going on. And I know that every time she has an appointment or she's getting test results or going through a procedure, I mean, I talk to my father more often. I mean, I talk to my dad three to four times a week anyways. But on those days, I might talk to him three or four times a day because I want to know what's going on. <laughs> you know, it's, it's bothering me. This, this guy, this church back there is worried over him and they have no, and, and it bothers him. You know, now, I don't know what you call that, but I look at it and say, this guy was considerate. Maybe you want to use the word courteous, but he's considerate, you know? He was considerate. I think part of the marks of being a godly man and being a godly woman is that we're considerate. We're, we, have, we have courtesy. 
you know, I was thinking about this this week. You know, it's a, we, we've arrived at a time when we almost take pride in the fact, well, you know, I'm a man and I just, I just say what I think and I don't care what anybody, how, you know, how it affects anybody else. You, you never heard that re- reference to somebody else? You know, that's a guy, he just speaks his mind and that's the way it is, you know? And we held that up as a, a remarkable quality. You know, somehow or another, that's, that guy's really, you know, he just speaks his mind, he doesn't care what other people think. I'm thinking... That sounds more like a preschooler than maturity to me. And I told the first service, you know, it kind of sounded like, you know, like my kids when they were younger and they had no filters. You know, I, I, funniest one, I can remember we took a national speaker out, guy who traveled around, a Christian author, whatever. We were holding a conference in Philadelphia with some other churches and we picked this guy up at the airport and Christina was with us kind of late and he hadn't eaten. So we had, I had both of the boys with me. We were there for a weekend, for a week. And, and they were like four and six or whatever. We took this guy to dinner, you know, and we stopped at a Friendly's. It was the only thing that was open, you know, and we're eating. He's chewing away in his French fries or whatever. And he was, you know, and, and Ben's sitting there and he says, I'm not going to have any brothers and sisters. My dad had that operation. <laughs> you know, he sent us a Christmas card that year. You know that? Maybe he just felt sorry for me. I don't know. But, you know, and, and but no filter. But now all of a sudden when we get to be adults, it's like, you know what? I... You know what? Let me show how mature I am. I'm just going to say what I want. I don't care how it makes other people feel. You're going to be kidding me. That's not, you know, godly men don't do that. They think about it. Why do you think the scripture says that we as men need to live with our wives with consideration? First Peter 3, 7. You know, Christian men, they think about what to get their wives for Christmas and for an anniversary and for their birthdays. They don't just get her a gift card and say, get what you want. Or send the daughter off to go buy the gift. They think about it because they're considerate. They put the toilet seat down if that's what she really wants because it's considerate. You know, and I'm starting to meddle a little bit, but you understand what I'm saying. I mean, it's like, that's just the way I am. You can dig it or leave it. You know, that, that, that's not being godly. Being godly is, is being aware of, of how our lives affects people around us and adjusting it so it makes their lives better in a way that's reflective of the mercy and the love and the compassion of God. One last thing. What he says in verse 30. So he almost died for the work of Christ. Christian men, godly men, are courageous. We spent a whole year looking at what it means to be courageous. He's saying here that this guy, he took up a challenge. I wonder what it was like to walk along the roadways of ancient Rome carrying a bundle of money. How dangerous that was. Being away from your family and away from your business or job for, for literally for months running this errand for the church takes courage. And I think often about the reasons why we don't engage in ministry. Well, I, you know, don't send me to Rwanda. I, I don't like bugs, you know, or I like my hot shower, you know, or I got to be connected to the internet or whatever. Being godly takes courage. It means taking risks. It means putting up with eight shots so you can make your way over there. If you happen to get malaria, get malaria. Thankfully, I haven't had that yet through my trips, but it takes courage. You know, we, we have an example of this. In, in, in our, we, we have missionaries right now to the Pleasant Street Baptist Church from our church, Jay and Patty Lynn. Just before Hope Chapel was started, Jay Lynn donated a kidney to a friend of his. The guy's wife was a match to give her a kidney, but she was too afraid. And Jay gave his friend a kidney. That's godliness. It takes courage. And we could go on through the contextualization and the application. Contextualization is literally just, just saying, where else does the Scripture talk about Timothy? Where else does the Scripture talk about Ephroditus? Where else does the, talk, does the Scripture talk about courage, consideration, and character? You can use a concordance and lots of other kinds of things. And there's information in your 40-day workbooks about, about where you can find all that thing. But it's taking that next step, rounding it out. And then applying it to our lives. Using the methods that we've been using. Things like probe it and pronounce it. Picture it. 
You know, what sin is there that I need to confess out of this? What promise do I need to claim? What attitude do I need to change? Well, let's just kind of go on and on. You know, I mean, he gives you an idea. What, what does he say in verse, verse, uh, verse 29? He says, therefore, welcome him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in honor. Who do you know like these guys that you need to honor? Maybe pick up a phone and give them a call and say, you know what? Thanks for being a guy who really lives like what it means to walk with God. Send him a note. Buy him a coffee. There's always ways to make application to our lives how we can become like this. You see, God has given us this book so that you and I can become the people that he has remade us to be in Jesus Christ. And the way that happens is because you observe it, you interpret it, you flesh it out with the scriptures as you contextualize it, and then you apply it. And when you do that, you become it and the blessings of God flow. Let's pray together. I can imagine there's probably something on your mind or heart right now saying, this, this is what I need to do about what I, need to, what I heard today. It might have to be about just embracing the challenge of being a student, really studying the Word. Or it might be a challenge of one of the aspects of what it means to be a godly man. Whatever it is, just take a moment in your own heart and mind this morning and solidify that commitment and determine what you're going to do about it. Father, we're grateful that you've equipped us with everything we need to become everything that you want us to be. Father, we pray now that we would not just be hearers of the word and with that deceive ourselves, but we'd be doers of the word. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.